We're continuing on in Daniel as we look at a, a vision. It's kind of funny. Uh, they were joking last night as I'm going through these series, 2020 vision. And uh, I'm reminded, of course, everything goes back to Jurassic Park. Um, remember that, that uh, you know, objects in the rearview mirror are closer than they appear? It, it seems kind of like the opposite. Like, like in the rearview mirror, you know, who saw this coming in January? This is so, and, and it, it, it so seems things seem so distant. And, and, and looking at some of the things that we've been talking about, it's like, wow, that was a little bit more uh, appropriate than I thought at the time. Um, so we're in, in the, the prophecy section now of, of Daniel. Um, and, and actually, the passage we're, we're going through is not so much a vision. Um, it's, it's Daniel um, looking back at some, some prophecy. Uh, and um, so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, and we're going to be going through verse 19. Daniel 9, verse 1 through 19. Uh, and so this is skipping, as we, we begin this chapter, it's skipping now uh, to uh, the the beginning, the very beginning, the first year of this time uh, uh, that, that Babylon has been defeated, and we are now in, uh, the, uh, in the time that that nation, Medo-Persia, uh, that we've been talking about so much, is, is now in power. So, so we're going to start in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. He would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our king and the princes, to our fathers and all the peoples of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us belongs shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to Israel, those near and those far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them off, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Lord, to, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings and princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing us great disaster for under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has 
kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. And the Lord, our God, is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all of your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for our, uh, the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and open uh, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. And do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. We're going to recall who Darius is. Um, we've talked about this guy. Uh, history does not record the name Darius the Mede. Um, when we read the scriptures, we'll come across another Darius. That's Darius the Great. He's later. Uh, he's, I think, a nephew or grandson of Cyrus. We're not going to get into all that. Uh, we, we mentioned, though, that uh, if we go back, that the historian Xenophon uh, records that um, Cyrus had an uncle whose name was Cyaxerxes II, who inherited the kingdom from his father. That, that guy's name was Astyages or whatever. Uh, if we remember it, um, go back. We, we talked about how that guy didn't hold on to his kingdom. He was kind of a partier. He was kind of like Belshazzar in that sense um, uh, from Babylon. The, he was kind of a guy who liked the, the trimmings and the trappings of being the leader, but didn't really want to do the leading. And so Cyrus kind of gained power, even as a general, underneath this time period. And, and he became, uh, Cyrus became the guy that people looked to for leadership, even though he wasn't the king. Of course, in time, that guy died or was killed. I don't know exactly how that happened. Uh, and, um, and Cyrus gains power. So... This guy is really almost not referred to at all in history. He's kind of a nothing. Right? He's just like, a, uh, I forget even the president, was it Garfield that, that died a, a few days in office or whatever? He died from the flu. That, that's, what, that's, what, that's what history notes about him. Died in office uh, uh, after, uh, uh, died from a cold or died from pneumonia or whatever it was. And, um, you know, that's, that's all there is to say about him. Well, there's not much to say about this guy. Uh, he... Um, he was not much. Cyrus comes to power. When we talk about this period, we always talk about the Babylonian captivity as being how long? Seventy years. That's not true. It was 68 years. We're going to talk about that. And this is one of those things that, remember, we've, we've talked and mentioned passage after passage. We've talked about how, how people want to tear down Daniel. Daniel is a powerful book in the Old Testament. It's full of prophecy. And, and people want to tear down Daniel more uh, than any other book in the Old Testament because it is, the prophecies are so accurate. People say, well, he must have wrote, wrote that so much later because it's, it's too detailed and accurate. There's no way any person prophesying or predicting could come up with that, which is circular reasoning. Obviously, if, if God inspired it, then it's, it's fine. Uh, Daniel is no Nostradamus. Uh, 
Because Nostradamus is like, uh, yeah, in the future something will happen. That's Nostradamus. This guy predicts stuff, and we're gonna, it's going to get more and more amazing. Even as we go, we've already seen some amazing predictions. And they're going to get more detailed, and they're going to get more specific, and there's going to be things uh, down to the, to the year and to the day. These are just amazing predictions. And so they, they attack it, and they say, well, see, this is one of the problems. He said 70 years, and he's even quoting Jeremiah who said 70 years, and, uh, and it was only 68. We know that from history. Cyrus gives a pretty detailed account of, of when things happened. And Babylon, as we know, only lasts 68 years. Uh, it starts in 606 uh, B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes, and, and at, he was a general. He wasn't the, the emperor yet of, of Babylon. And, and, and that's when he took Daniel... Uh, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Uh, he took them uh, captives. That was the first wave. That's when we start from. Well, we know that Babylon uh, ends, uh, I have the date here, 538 B.C., so I can do some pretty simple math. That's 68 years. Um, so what's, what's the problem here? Well, we have to look at what Jeremiah himself was prophesying. So, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, go over really fast because he's quoting Dan, uh, Jeremiah. So let's go to Jeremiah. And, uh, and that's in chapter 25. There's actually two passes, passages, Jeremiah 25 and uh, Jeremiah 29. But we're just going to look at the Jeremiah 25 passage. It's got more details in it. Verse 11 and 12. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. He says, This whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Well, that seems pretty plain and simple. Well, Jeremiah was wrong, because Babylon was only there for 68. Look, hold the phones. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I'll bring on, let's continue, so I'll bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all, the, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning the nations. So I want to look at this because it does seem cut and dry that Jeremiah is predicting 70 years of Babylon. But it is more important to notice the specifics. I, th- I believe the 70 years is important, but he's predicting the time that, Jer- that Jerusalem is going to lay in waste. That's the point. We're going to see that even uh, more specifically if we turn to Second Chronicles, which details this. Second uh, Chronicles. And we believe that this is written at least either by or under the direction of Ezra, uh, the chronicles of the Jews, uh, that even after this period of when they returned. Second Chronicles, chapter 36, makes it a little bit more clear exactly. It doesn't mention Jeremiah by name, I don't believe, but, uh, but it does reference this prediction. Second uh, Chronicles 36, verse 20. Oops. Where did I go? I went past it. 
verse 20 uh, through 22. It says, Those who escaped from the sword carried away to Babylon, where they became servants of him and sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So here we have this mention of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put it into writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all the people? May, his Lord, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So Jeremiah encapsulates everything under Babylon. Ezra explains that that was not exclusively Babylon, that, that this period of seven, 70 years is about the desolation of Jerusalem, and that includes Cyrus, who, who, who conquered Babylon, absorbed Babylon, and then in his first year, so about two years later, uh, remember that, that, that this other king here, Cyrus, uh, was, was not really in power for that long. And Cyrus assumes the throne. And in his first year, he stirs up, God stirs up Cyrus. And so this is that 70 years. Now I want to explain something. What is this, this, there's a concept in here that's really important to what we're talking about. And that is this, this Sabbaths. What is this 70 Sabbaths? These, these 70 Sabbaths are important because these have to do with exactly why the Jews were in Babylon. Every seven years, they were supposed to have what is called a Sabbath year. Sabbath means rest. It means seventh. Uh, literally, but it became a synonym for rest, a Sabbath day, right? The seventh day you rest. They had a, a Sabbath year, and, and actually even they even had a year of Jubilee, which was every 70 years, uh, in which property kind of went back to the original family that owned it. Imagine that. I, I bought this house. What? It's not yours anymore. <laughs> they ignored that one too. But the seventh year is what I want to focus on. See, every seven years, they were supposed to, for six years, they were supposed to kind of accumulate some things. And then in the seventh year, God said, I want you to let the land rest. This was his way of, of not overworking the ground itself. So that it would, you know, just rain and all the, all the things, the soil would end up being replenished. Well you lose a significant amount of profit, about 14% profit specifically, by doing that. And that's the way they looked at this. So I don't know exactly when they overlooked this. Maybe it was right away. Maybe this was sporadically. Or, or maybe it was just the last 490 years, all consecutive. I, I don't know how this worked. But God was counting. God was counting. And he said, you've skipped 70 of these. So I am going to make it up. God does that. We wonder, oh God, how long is this going to happen? Oh, God's not paying attention. 
Because things aren't getting fixed in my time. God's counting. And God can count. Remember Peter asked, he said, how many times should I, should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven? That's 490. To the point, God was saying, you, you're bad counters. You're, you're, how, we're always trying to count something. Oh, two, three. Oh, man, lost count. Got to go back. Right? We do that all the time. God doesn't miscount. He counted 70 years. You've, 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 uh, you've not been obeying me. You did it 70 times. So it's not going to be a year sooner. 68 years and Babylon overtakes, or is overtaken. God says, not yet. Got two more. And so there's a first year of Darius, who doesn't last long, and then into the first year of Cyrus. And then God says, all right, we made up for it. I'm counting and I'm putting everything back the way it was. And we're going to pay attention, hopefully from now on, when I say to do something, this is the way I'd like it to be done, please. So that's the time frame. That's these 70 years. So it wasn't about Babylon specifically. Jeremiah is kind of generalizing the nation who's in charge of this. It's specifically about the 70 years. That's what this is about. So having explained that context, I want to look at two things, two observations from these texts that that really have nothing to do with that specifically, but that's just kind of the structure of what we're dealing with. I want two observations because this is largely a prayer. Most of this is a prayer. And there are two observations from this prayer that I think especially right now we might find uncomfortable. Maybe any time we would find these uncomfortable. Because we have a view as we look at our world about the way things are And we have a view of reality that's not always accurate. We have a view and we we determine things that that we think is happening. And I imagine that if we were taken as slaves into Babylon, we might have a view of the way, why God was letting this happen, or or God is not paying attention, and God would say, no, I was just um, making sure that the land went out for 70 years because you missed it. We, we would have been like, what? That's, I had no idea that's what you were doing. Because that wasn't... Uh, we know that... We, we look at our Bible as chronological, but Second Chronicles wasn't written to explain what, the why yet. Second Chronicles was written much later, after they returned, after they've restored the temple, and after they've rebuilt the city... Ezra is writing this history. He's explaining later what happened. They had no idea this was why. They just knew 70 years. That perspective came later in the rearview mirror. That makes sense. So, we have a view sometimes of things that are going on, and God goes... You totally don't understand it. You're going to have to wait a little while to understand it. So I want to look at this prayer and notice two important things. Verse 12. 
in Daniel chapter 9. It says, He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon a great disaster for under the whole heaven such as never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. We look at Daniel as a man of great vision. How many times through these passages do we, do we, do we read that Daniel... The, the last two chapters have ended with Daniel not really understanding it. We're going to see it again. We're going, to under, we're going to see this again where he's like, God, I don't understand this. Daniel was a great prophet, but he understood almost none of what he said. And so he's, he, I don't believe, understood the why he had either. Because he doesn't mention any specifics of the, the sins that had happened. He's just assuming, we've done some awful things. And he is viewing this as devastation. He is viewing what's going on in his society as out of order. He's viewing this as something that God is doing to his city. God, why are you doing this to your city? He didn't understand it. Because if he did, this wouldn't be the way he approached it. What is God doing? And this is the first observation. What we see as devastation is often a remedy. Pay attention to that. We're looking at our world around us and seeing devastation in our cities. And it makes no sense to us because we don't have the 20 years from now looking back on it perspective, or 70 years, or whatever years. We don't understand perspective. I wish I was a prophet, except that we now know that prophets don't always understand what they do. So I can't even tell you, even if I was a prophet, what's going on. He sees it as out of order, and he doesn't understand that God is saying, no, the land has been out of order for 490 years. I'm putting it back in order. And sometimes that is an unpleasant process for those who have to live through it. So he identifies some things. Daniel's perspective is, is wrong. And he starts identifying the perpetrators who sinned. And he doesn't ever identify a specific evil that's been done. Just in general, people had left God. It's just a generality. We, we read the early stories of, of Daniel and what's going on. And we see, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not kneeling. What, the fact that they didn't is probably an indication that the majority of people did. There was not a tremendous amount of resistance in Jewish people. You, we think, oh, well, they went, into, we, they went to Babylon and immediately they were different because, wow, they woke up. No, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't wake up. You notice in this prayer he's praying for God to fulfill prophecy? 
Well, why is he doing that? God's going to fulfill prophecy. God, gave, God said it, he's going to do it. Why do we need to pray for it? He doesn't assume God's going to make it true just because he said so. That would seem to be like a safe assumption. God said it, I'm going to do it. But maybe he's just trying to make sure. Maybe he's just not feeling really sure about it. You ever had a lot of anticipation for a thing? And uh, it's coming up. You're kind of confident, but you're kind of not confident. You've studied for the test. And you're now the night before the test. You've studied for it. You should know your material. But you're not so confident. And you're still nervous walking in to take the test, right? And you walk out with an A or whatever. That never happened to me, but... We, we, I'm kind of confident, but I'm not, not kind of confident. And that's kind of Daniel here. Yeah, I know you told Jeremiah 70 years, but God, this is kind of year 69. <laughs> and I'm, I'm praying that we're still kind of on the same page. And so it's at the point of discovering this prophecy or rediscovering it that he's in this mode of godly sorrow. God's perspective is that unlike Daniel's perspective, Jerusalem wasn't a victim. The city, Daniel is like, you've done this to your city. God is like, no. I'm doing this for my city. Wrong perspective. The city of Jerusalem isn't the victim here. And I'm not the perpetrator. God is not the perpetrator of violence. God, you've done this to your city. Daniel has, he's a a wonderful prophet, but he's misidentified the victim and he's misidentified the perpetrator. True enough, Jerusalem was destroyed and burned, and he says nothing like this has ever happened before. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe that's just kind of hyperbole, but this pretty awful things. It's, it's certainly among the greatest at that point in time. The temple was destroyed. The articles were taken into captivity. God was never concerned about buildings. Remember that, that, that wonderful building was never God's idea in the first place? Remember that was David's idea, and Solomon built it, and God said, I don't need that. Your idea. Okay, make it nice. God's commands about fallow ground were given in the wilderness before they even had a city. That's what they were rejecting. Those commands that were given earlier. So what we are seeing in our culture... has to happen. We're all trying to figure out how to avoid it. And God is like, no, this is what happens when things are out of order. When, uh, when things get out of order in nature, the corrections are violent. It's called a tornado. Typically a 
we all know this from the kid. Hot air rises, right? I lived on a third floor. I knew that. Hot air rises, no AC. That was a hot apartment. Hot air rises, but every once in a while, every once in a while, uh, a hot air pocket pushes underneath a warm air pocket, and it goes like this. And it's out of order. And that cold air mass, heavy, and you don't think air has got weight, but it does, and it's got a tremendous amount of weight, and it starts searching for the weak spot, and it finds it. And then every last bit of that cold air pocket goes down, and it drills a little hole in that hot air pocket until things find their equilibrium. We call it a tornado. It's incredibly destructive. And then afterwards, it's like it never happened. And then everything around it, well, now we know that something happened. See, when things get out of order, God says, it's got to be fixed. There's laws in place that fix it. And it's not going to be pleasant. What we are seeing is decades and decades of removing God from our culture with very little resistance from the church. It's out of order. I got a notice, actually my wife did, she told me about it, that my son was skipping school this week, or this year, before all of this happened. He was absent from drama class. All right, we'll handle it. Why are you absent? I walked out. Why'd you walk out? They were showing Legally Blonde, the... Legally Blonde sounds like a movie I'm not interested, so therefore I haven't seen it. They were watching a musical. Now, I'm not interested in Legally Blonde, so I can't imagine how horrific the musical Broadway adaptation was for this. Why? So I became interested in why, what would cause my son to walk out. And I scrolled. Found it on YouTube. Piece of paper, pen. And I started writing down times. Minute 225. Quote. And I went in with a two-page summary of Legally Blonde, the Broadway musical adaptation. What they had sat for two days and I had a little chat with a vice principal and a drama teacher. Interesting that when I read verbatim, they were highly uncomfortable. I just quoted what she had played. <coughs> you know what I took out of that meeting? I didn't change anybody's mind. I took out of that that she had gotten no pushback 
ever. No principle had gotten pushback. This teacher in her second school had gotten no pushback. But everybody you know on Facebook is upset because somebody got removed from a syrup bottle. When things are out of order, it will find a hole and drill a hole in society. And it will not be pleasant, but that is how things get fixed. And so we come to the assigning of blame. Oh, don't we love to assign the blame? This is the second point that I find interesting in this prayer. Where does Daniel assign the blame? Do you notice the word we in here? Over and over and over. I think one time he uses the word they. I might be miscounting there. We. 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 Was Daniel guilty of this? Daniel went in as a teenager. He didn't own land. He didn't own property. He wasn't guilty of this thing that he didn't even know was the problem until later. He was not the guilty party here. We have done this. Maybe Daniel just assumed, I've I've probably done something wrong. We love to assign blame and to make sure that we exclude ourselves from blame. We love those two things. And in fact, there's, you probably tend to fit more because everybody here fits more in one of those groups. We all are either, we're some combination, but, but we either fall kind of towards the sign of looking to assign blame or to make sure we're not being blamed. And there's the quick way to find out which group you are. Whichever one of those two statements resonates with you most, you're in the other one. Let me explain what I mean by that. If, if I say you, uh, we're quick to blame and you start thinking of all the people in your circle who blame everybody, then you're the one that doesn't want to be blamed. Because you notice those people, they're blaming everybody. If you're sick and tired of all those people avoiding blame, you're probably the person that likes to blame people. We're one of those two things. It's just we're in those categories. There's very few people that are like, man, whatever. You can blame me if you want. I don't care. I'm not going to blame you. There's very few of those people in life. We all want to make sure. It's not my fault. Or it's your fault. And Daniel says, it's our fault. And he's not even guilty of that. That particular thing that God says is why you're here. He's not guilty of it. But just for good measure, he includes himself. Now, Daniel wasn't perfect. 
But let's, let's broaden this out because he didn't probably know that this was for those 70 Sabbath years. But some of the other things that they were guilty of, he's not guilty of either. Is Daniel guilty of idolatry? No. We notice that one of the things he talks about in here is, is not praying, not calling on God. He says, we haven't called on your name. Is Daniel guilty of not calling on God's name? No. When he was told he couldn't, he went into his room, threw open the doors and says, here I am, come get me three times a day. Daniel's not guilty of that. I don't know what it was Daniel felt guilty over, but it's not these, these large, broad problems that we recognize as associated with the Jews in Babylon, or just before Babylon. But it doesn't make a difference whether he was or wasn't. It is a noble thing to not try to separate yourself from the group. Our class this morning was talking about how we're a group. We're not individuals in, in the same I mean, We are individuals. Our, our faith is individual. Yes, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We know that from the scriptures. I will stand before God and I will give an account for me, not for you. But our, our identity is as a group. As one man, as Ephesians says. And Daniel does not separate himself. Even though he probably would have been justified in doing so. He does not separate himself. That is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable when we see a wrong in a group and we don't feel like we did it to go, that's not me. I'm not a racist. Have you felt that? And Daniel says, listen. Something's out of order and it's only going to be fixed when we are together in being a part of the solution. Hosea says, my people die for a lack of knowledge. Did you catch that? My people die for lack of knowledge. We are so interested in differentiating from one another and making sure it's the guilty and the unguilty and the this group and the that group. And God is looking at the world and saying, my people, my people are dying out there for a lack of knowledge. God identifies them as his people. And we're looking at it as them, those people. This is hard. I did not like writing this sermon. I, I sat there in a parking lot and I was just reading through this on my lunch break. And I'm like, 
I don't like this main division, and I don't want to put it in my sermon, God. Because I don't feel guilty. But God views those who are extremely lost as his people. There's a time for problem solving if we want to avoid mistakes in the future. And to whatever degree that that involves blame, if you want to call it that, that's a part of that process. Not, not to accuse and not to figure out what group is more and, and what that, but there is a part of figuring out what went wrong that is appropriate. As Solomon wrote, there's a time for everything under the sun the time to throw stones and the time to stop throwing stones. Right now, I think it's time to stop throwing stones. Time to start gathering some stones together. My challenge for us to leave here is to not be aloof, not to be separate To understand that whatever role we play in this, we're all connected to it. We are all a part of a group, the church. And while we are neatly tucked away off of the main street, we are a part of our society. And this is going to get fixed quicker if we do not remain separate from that society. I want to share with you, I emailed something out. I don't know when or if. I talked with a liaison officer in Milwaukee. Um, At some point, should things resume some degree of enforceability and safety, there will be an opportunity for us to do something productive in Milwaukee. What that will look like, I don't know. Who knows by then? Right now, he said we can't allow people to come in because you will be targets. So don't come in. We can't protect you. At some point, there will be a point to be a part of the solution. I heard one guy saying, you know, maybe we need to start sending missionaries to cities. We've left the cities, and that's where the cities are having their problems at because they've been left without God. Maybe we need to have missionaries to cities in the country that we live in. My goodness, Nigeria is 53% Christian. I'm not sure America is. But we need to be a part of a solution. And what that looks like, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. It might just begin in your workspace. It might begin in your friendships. And it is uncomfortable 
but we have to tell people that good news. Because all they get every day is bad news. And we have to be the good news, otherwise it's going to be out of order.